Welcome to Breaking Green, a podcast by Global Justice Ecology Project. On Breaking Green, we will talk with activists and experts to examine the intertwined issues of social, ecological, and economic injustice. We will also explore some of the more outrageous proposals to address climate and environmental crises that are falsely being sold as green. I am your host, Steve Taylor. Carbon capture is often thought of as a new technology to help fight climate change. But it has been around for 50 years and was first developed by gas companies and was used to enhance recovery from depleted oil fields. Today, tax credits are being used to subsidize the technology as a response to global warming. Yet a September 1st story in The Guardian highlighted a report by the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis on Carbon Capture Technology. The report details how carbon capture storage schemes, which are key in many governments' plans for addressing climate change, are not a true solution to the climate crisis and may even increase carbon emissions in the long run. In this episode of Breaking Green, we will talk with Bruce Robertson, one of the authors of the report. Bruce Robertson is an energy finance analyst of the gas LNG sector for the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. He has worked with Perpetual Trustees, UBS, Nippon Life Insurance, and BT. He has appeared as an expert witness before a number of government inquiries into energy issues. Bruce Robertson, Welcome to Breaking Green. Great to be here, Steve. Bruce, a uh, September 1st article in The Guardian focused on a report by the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis that lays out the case that carbon capture is not a solution to net zero emissions. You are one of the two authors of that report, which is titled The Carbon Capture Crux, Lessons Learned. Before we get into details about the report, could you tell us a bit about the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis and what you do for that organization? Yeah, well, um, the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis is a not-for-profit organization that's looking at the energy transition and basically what we're fi- you know what what anyone finds that looks at this sort of stuff is is that there are a lot of institutional barriers to change. The report was, I, I would say, uh, surprising for those who follow climate news. Um, there's a lot of uh, people out there who thought that this was a rather new technology where you're just pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it. And, and a lot of emphasis has been placed on that technology. But it's been around, as your report says, for about 50 years. Um, could, could you tell us about how carbon capture technology was first developed and, and what it was developed for? Yeah, most certainly. Um, look, um, carbon capture technology was first developed as an oil production method. And I think it's really important to, to look at the history of how this industry is developed. Uh, it was developed... As a, as a method of producing more oil out of depleted oil fields. When you produce natural gas, you have to split off the CO2 because natural gas cannot contain too much CO2. So you split the methane, which is the gas that we all use uh, to produce power in our homes, um, away from the CO2. And the CO2 simply used to just be vented into the atmosphere. And it still is mostly just vented into the atmosphere. 
But in some, um, but what the oil and gas industry saw was a business opportunity to use this CO2 to produce more oil and gas. And today, still 73% of all carbon capture and storage projects are for enhanced oil recovery. So the majority of, of carbon capture and storage projects are used to produce more oil. Now, what happened over time was in the 70s, you know, climate change in the 80s even, climate change really wasn't that big an issue. So the oil and gas industry just went about doing what they did, their enhanced oil recovery, but then they spotted an opportunity to rebrand what was essentially an oil production technique, oil and gas production technique, to rebrand that technique as uh, climate-friendly solutions. So they rebranded it and called it carbon capture and storage. In your report, I was reading that historically, uh, this CO2 was captured, and then I guess the gas companies sold it to individuals, or I mean other corporations, that were interested in pumping it into to oil fields, less productive oil fields, to enhance enhance the pumping of oil. Is that correct? Yeah, what it does is so so there's a very big big um project and one of the well the largest and the longest running um enhanced oil recovery uh, project or carbon capture and storage project depending on how you want to call it um is is actually um in the US in Wyoming uh, at Shoot Creek um Exxon Mobil run it and now um it it what it did and and what it still does today is it sells that CO2 um to other oil and gas producers in the region, pipes it over to them, and they then force it at great pressure down the well. Um, and what it does is it repressurizes the old oil fields because oil fields, when they get depleted, the pressure drops. So by pumping carbon dioxide into them, you repressurize it and you get the last oil and gas out of that reservoir. It forces the last oil and gas out of the reservoir. And essentially, that's that's how um, that that's how uh, the industry works. Well, that's interesting. So, in, in your report, you talk about scope three emissions, and that being the elephant in the room when it comes to using carbon capture, and uh, you know what the consequences are for including this type of technology in plans to uh, mitigate greenhouse gases. Could you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, sure. Look, now, look, um, very simply, there, there are three scope emissions. You've got one and two, which are basically to produce the gas. Um, you, you, you make scope one and two emissions. Scope three emissions are when you burn the gas. Now, in the whole process, what carbon capture and storage is looking to address is the scope one and two emissions. Now, they're only a small proportion of the emissions. Only around 15% of the emissions are when you produce the gas. The lion's share of emissions occur when you burn the gas, the scope three emissions. Now, we all know that, you know, when we burn gas in our home, you know, to heat our home or, 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 or cook or heat the water, we're not going to do carbon capture and storage on that. So, 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 
and 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 in a large part when industry does it there is some carbon capture and storage on industry but it's a very small part of that you know the lion's share is still the natural gas processing um, of, of carbon capture and storage the lion's share of projects so in a lot of cases, carbon capture and storage won't occur. Now, the, the classic example also, I think, is actually, um, you know, oil. Most of it goes to, to transportation. You're not going to do carbon capture and storage on transportation. And, and um, you know, with, with the oil part of the equation, that means that most of the emissions aren't being sequestered. Um, so the, these companies that are saying, oh, you know, it's a green process, um, it's only addressing 15% of those emissions and you can break it down much further than that because most of the projects aren't successful for a start. Um, not, they're only aiming to capture 90% of that 15% uh, even when they are successful and it takes a lot of energy to do it. Around in, at Quest in, in Canada, which was, a, if you look at the numbers, you would term it a successful project. It, it achieved its goals of capturing 90% of the emission and is today still achieving its goals of capturing 90% of the emissions. It's one of the rare exceptions. Um, and But if you look at that project, 21% of the total emissions captured, 21% of those emissions are eaten up by the process itself. It's a very energy intensive process, carbon capture and storage. So, you know, 21% of the emissions are eaten up just doing that. So you're not even really addressing the 15% of emissions that, 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 that you're trying to capture with carbon capture and storage. Um, quite simply, it's a much, much lower figure, in, in, in the net figure you're actually achieving. And this is another thing. See, See, they're utilising, the oil and gas industry is utilising this, particularly in, in my home country of Australia, um, as justification for new gas projects. They say, oh, but we're going to put on carbon capture and storage so everything's all right. Well, everything's not all right if you look at it from a climate point of view because most of the emissions are still occurring. Reading your report, I came under the impression that with some of these projects with EOR, enhanced oil recovery, it, it almost seems, uh, at least for most of them, which may not be many meeting their mark, or even if they are, that overall you're not actually reducing emissions with the plant. I mean, you're not really producing net zero for a given uh, project. Would I be correct in, in reading your report that way? Um, actually, it's a bit worse than that, unfortunately, Steve. Um, uh, um, enhanced oil recovery projects um, increase emissions. As, as a rule, they actually increase emissions, and they increase emissions for, for, for two very basic reasons. One, and, and most importantly, is, is that they are actually meaning we're developing more carbon dioxide-rich gas and oil fields than we used to. Right. If we have a look at Shoot Creek, for example, it is an incredibly oil intense, uh, CO2 intensive um, gas field. It would have never been developed without carbon capture and storage. And the net result of developing Shoot Creek, even with carbon capture and storage, even with that in place, has been that we've developed a very high 
because it was an ultra high uh, yield in CO2. And, and when you net out the savings, it's still a very high CO2 field. So the net result is the carbon dioxide coming off that gas field is higher than most the gas fields in, 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 in the world. Um, and, you know, globally speaking. So, so it's being used as a justification to develop uh, very, very high CO2 fields. They could only develop Shoot Creek by selling the gas byproducts, including carbon dioxide. It's the only way they could actually do it is to sell the carbon dioxide and so um, and, and justify the economics. Um, and then, what's more, that carbon dioxide is used to produce more oil, which produces more emissions at the end of the day. So, so what what um, enhanced oil recovery historically and and in the projects it's it's looking at being put on today um, is generating more emissions, uh, not less. And I think and that's the majority of carbon capture and storage projects are enhanced oil recovery. We've got to get back to that very basic fact: seventy three percent of all carbon capture and storage projects are for enhanced oil recovery. So in the main, it's a technology that produces more emissions, not less emissions. So I want to I talk to you a little bit more about that. The IEA, the International uh, Energy Agency, are they uh, actually promoting uh, carbon capture uh, EOR versions? Or, I mean, do they distinguish? Yeah, that. They, they do distinguish and, and they, they are after a massive increase in, in, in capacity of, of carbon capture and storage, not carbon capture usage and storage. Sorry to get so complicated, but enhanced oil recovery is called CCUS, which is carbon capture usage and storage. Carbon capture and storage is the same as, a, as, as enhanced oil recovery, but it doesn't have, it just is just storing the carbon dioxide underground. It's not producing more oil and gas, right? It's just storing it permanently underground. That's what they're calling for is a massive increase in carbon capture and storage. But if we have a look, um, the largest, the largest on the globe, the largest carbon capture and storage project is the Gorgon um, uh, project off, off the northwest shelf of, of, of Australia. Now, the Gorgon project uh, is a massive gas and LNG project that, um, that has a very large $3.1 billion they've spent on this bit of kit, um, a, a carbon capture and storage um, facility on it. Now, the, the engineers involved in this are, um, are um, the engineers from Exxon, Shell, Chevron, you know, these are globally world-class petroleum engineers we're talking about. It's not the B grade. This is the A grade team on this, on this project. They've got virtually, they've had virtually unlimited financial resources to make it work. Um, they've had tremendous support from the Australian government to make this work. Um, and the West Australian government where it's located. Massive support from, 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 from the local governments there. And they can't get it to work. And this really is the key point. When a project like Gorgon doesn't work properly, it's only capturing 50% of the emissions that, that, that it's meant to capture, 
And even then, it's been intermittent. You know, it's had a number of shutdowns since it's since it's it started up. Um, a number of engineering problems. What that points to to me is a tremendously problematic technology. It it, it shows that this is not an easy technology. And we've, as you pointed out very clearly at the beginning of this podcast, it's an old technology. It's been going since the 1970s. And this is the point. The point is that we haven't seen what you see in most industries. Most industries, you need big government support at the beginning, and then the government support falls away as the industry stands on its own two feet and starts, you know, scales up and starts being economic. Carbon and capture and storage hasn't worked like that. What we've seen is the industry scale up. It's, it's, it's failed in a number of cases to actually operate properly. Um, and, and capture what it's meant to. And, and it still needs large chunks of government money or tax breaks or some form of government support. It still needs that to exist. And this is the key point really is, is that we haven't seen the typical maturation phase you normally get in an industry. And I think, uh, without really, um, yeah, without really exploring that, you know, it, it, without really understanding that, you don't really understand. You've got to understand the history of carbon and capture and storage. Otherwise, a lot of what I'm saying doesn't really make sense. You know, it, it, it doesn't really make sense unless you go back and look at what happened in the past and what's happening now. This is your host, Steve Taylor, and we will be back right after this. Global Justice Ecology Project partners with small nonprofits when a group or organization whose non-for-profit work closely aligns with our mission by becoming a fiscal sponsor. This helps them minimize bureaucracy so they can focus on their crucial work for ecological and social justice, forest protection, and human rights. GJEP is a co-founder and coordinator for the Campaign to Stop GE Trees, both in North America and globally. The Campaign to Stop GE Trees is a national and international alliance of organizations united towards prohibiting the ecologically and socially devastating release of genetically engineered trees into the environment. Their mission is to protect forests and biodiversity and provide support to communities threatened by the dangerous release of genetically engineered trees. For more information and to sign the petition to stop genetic engineering in our forests, visit StopGETrees.com. Welcome back to Breaking Green. Could you tell us a little bit about the scope of of, of your research um, when it comes to how many plants you 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 studied, uh, what that represented uh, regarding the history of carbon capture, and then what you found? How many projects succeeded and how many projects failed? Yeah, yeah. We we we, we picked out thirteen what we considered were pretty flagship projects globally and they account for 55% of all the emissions that have been captured in history. That includes the ones that have failed. Um, uh, look, we did pick a, um, a couple of failures, like total failures, just to show that it did actually occur because it's quite hard to, you know, <laughs> they're not around anymore. Um, but, 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 but we also picked um, three, uh, we did studied 13 projects altogether. What it found was that basically Seven were underperforming. Uh, one had totally failed. Two had been shut early, and three 
in the main, you would say, were successful. Um, you know, were very successful. Um, uh, the three that were successful, strangely enough, two come from Norway, and 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 one, as I mentioned earlier, was the Quest project in Canada, um, Shell's Quest project, and 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 two two are from from Equinor in 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 Norway. Um, look, I I think what what we really found was that carbon capture and storage is not a technology you can take a successful project from point A and put it on another location and it might not work. And that's really the key point because the geology that you're putting that carbon into, this, the, the, the rock or the sand or whatever the, the structure you're putting that into is totally different. And, and this, is, this is really the key problem is, is that, you know, you can't, it's not a, it's not a transferable technology. And I think that that's the main problem with it from, from what we saw is, is that you can't just say, all right, because Equinor have had two successful projects in Norway, can we take those Equinor engineers, bring them over to the US, for example, and, and, and get them to build a plant and everything will be all right? The answer is no. The answer is no, I can tell you now. It's not necessarily true. They may be successful and they may not be successful. And, um, you know, it was the Equinor engineers, for example, that went down to Algeria and did the Insular project that they ended up having to shut because the carbon dioxide was moving in ways underground that they didn't expect, right? That said it was, it was just moving in ways that they didn't expect and they went, whoa, 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 whoa we're out of here. We're going to shut this down. It's not, not working. It, that transferability is the key. You can't transfer this technology. And a lot of that has to do with the geology of different places, correct? Yeah, the geology and, and, and the, the material and the, that you're putting it into. Like, for example, in, in, in Gorgon, one of the big problems they've had is, is sand clogging up some of the um, monitoring equipment that's vital for the process, right? Like it, it's clogging up the, the monitoring equipment. And that's that's that, that 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 that's a thing that's unique to Barrow Island, where where they're doing that project. It's it's not something that probably exists in a lot of the other projects that have been done globally. It was interesting that you noted that it was a rather unique regulatory and taxing structure in Norway that actually made it financially viable or at least a, a success in, in Norway. Yeah, well, you have very, very high carbon prices in Norway for a start. You know, they're 100 euros a tonne, which is a lot um, uh, by, by global standards. Um, so so th there is that incentive um, to do something. And then the regulatory environment basically is, is, is also making it, um, yeah, very, very uh, possible to do these projects from a regulatory point of view. Um, they're looking at doing a large industrial one now um, in the North Sea, the Northern Lights. Um, we didn't cover that, the Northern Lights, because we we're not covering future projects. This was looking back. This was saying, well, what is the situation today and, and what is happening today? Um, we will be covering Northern Lights as, as it develops, um, uh, you know, but but there's all we know is that it exists as a project at the moment to capture industrial gas and 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 send it um, to somewhere in the North Sea. Look, the other the other problem globally with this technology, generally speaking, and it's a big problem in Asia 
um, which we should really cover because I think it's important when you look at, at, for example, international energy agencies, you know, saying that we've got to do a lot more carbon capture and storage. In Asia, in a lot of Asia like Japan and South Korea, there is not a big indigenous oil and gas industry and therefore there aren't the sites to actually put the captured carbon dioxide. So globally, that's a problem. You know, like it's not it, not every country is like Australia and, and the US and, and Russia, for example. Not every country produces lots of oil and gas. Um, quite a lot of uh, rely on imports. Um, so, so, you know, there, there aren't the structures to put, in many cases, there aren't simply aren't structures to put the CO2 into. Some expectations are unrealistic globally is what I'm saying. And then in your report, you did uh, mention some disasters, the uh, unintentional venting of stored gases, that there's been a hard time predicting our, you know, what's going to happen when you store these gases in the long term. Yeah, it is, it is quite hard to predict what will happen. You know, um, over time, the earth moves, you know, you get earthquakes, you get cracks in rocks, all that sort of stuff occurs over time. Um, and, and, and what, what you can see is you can see, um, you know, the, the IPCC in its carbon dioxide capture and storage report clearly points to the long-term risks. And it says that you can get catastrophic failure of, of these, of these, um, storage areas where, where, where basically all the carbon dioxide could be let go or you can get slow leakages. And, and, and the best example I can point to is actually a prospective project that there are lots of documents for in Australia. It's the Moomba gas field in South Australia. You know, and this is pretty typical of a, of a gas, you know, of, of a carbon capture and storage. It will be done in an old oil and gas um, field like, like Moomba in South Australia. It's pretty typical. Um, but in that gas field, there are 2,100 wells, and they've been drilled since the 1970s, um, you know, before the time of ubiquitous GPS systems, you know, um, a, a lot of times passed since then. It's 50 years ago. It's out in the desert, you know, the wells, the caps may be covered in dirt now and you wouldn't know where they are. They're very hard to find again. Um, you know, these old wells do fail. And the best example of that, of an old well failing, wasn't actually with carbon dioxide, it was with methane, but both are put underground at high pressure, both are gases. It's a very similar process. Um, at Aliso Canyon was a gas storage facility. It was an old oil and gas well. It is a different gas. It's methane I'm talking about here, but it's the same principle. What happened was, was that an old well blew out. It, it just, the plug totally failed in an old well at Aliso Canyon and they lost the gas and, you know, it caused the evacuation of the suburb. It was the largest gas leak in US history, all these things. Now that could have equally happened if that was a carbon capture and storage facility, you know, if they were using that, that well that obviously sealed pretty well before then because they put valuable natural gas into it. They don't want it to leak out. I can assure you, you know, it wasn't the intention of the oil and gas companies for that gas to leak out. Um, they wanted to sell it, you know, and not watch it go off into the atmosphere. But that's what happened. And, look, that could very easily happen with, with a, a um, 
you know, a carbon capture and storage project in, in an area like Moomba in South Australia, I said, which has a lot of old oil and gas wells in it. It just does. And most oil fields do. They have a lot of old wells in them. And, and you know, they each one of those presents a pathway for the gas to escape out. You also noted that these multi-billion dollar projects will at first have the liability and the uh, cost of containing gases, but there's going to be a tendency or concern about transferring that liability and cost to taxpayers. Yeah, generally speaking, that's what happens globally. Um, Yeah, generally speaking, what happens is once the, the, the project's finished, there's a monitoring period. Now, that may be 10 or 15 years, in some cases 20 years, some cases maybe shorter, um, you know, depending on what the, the, is negotiated with the government. But then after that monitoring period, you know, the, the, the company hands back the licence and wipes its hand of all liability and the liability goes on to the taxpayer. Um, and that's essentially what, what happens in, 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 you know, most places in the globe. Um, it, the oil and gas companies don't have to then monitor it. It's up to the state to monitor um, whether there's CO2 leaking out of that, that, that project or not. And in some cases, it's quite hard to tell because, you, um, you know, the leaks can be very slow. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be, you know, that, that, that quite spectacular one that happened at Aliso Canyon, that, that example of a gas leak. They don't necessarily have to be like that. They can be very slow over hundreds of years. But the net result is still the same. The the carbon dioxide can leak to the surface. These projects can have failure post-production. You you informed us earlier in in this interview that there's a difference between carbon capture sequestration and carbon capture and usage. So uh, I looked into it, and uh, with the Inflation Reduction Act uh, just signed into law recently by President Biden, there are tax credits for carbon capture and usage, which is the enhanced oil recovery. So how typical is that, that this old technology, which you already said will create, in essence, more carbon dioxide, I mean, it's really not a solution to climate change, how how common is it for a project or, or, or tax credits like that to be given to this old oil and gas technology and it being sold as green? It's it's pretty pretty common. Yeah, it is pretty common. Um, you know, I think increasingly people are realizing that that's not really going to wash. Unfortunately, obviously, in the US. <laughs> Hasn't quite come to that realization yet, um, but 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 you know I think I th- think most people with a thinking mind would um, would think that that's you know really not really not a, a climate solution. You know it, it, it's a it, it's a good way to produce more oil and gas. Um, yeah, but it's not a climate solution. No. Is it is is it common still? Is is a, is, is a, the tax system that the US has? Yeah, it's still it's 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 there's still incentive for for CCUS, you know, for, for enhanced oil recovery projects. There are globally there is still a lot of incentives for doing those, but but increasingly I think we are seeing the distinction between the two. Um, and it's going to get harder. It, 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 there's one thing that I can assure you, it's going to get harder to do CCUS 
projects and claim tax credits. I mean that 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 loophole will have to close. Um, you know, but it has, it has in, in in the Inflation Reduction yes. Act. It's right there. It's right there in the U.S. Yep, that's something for you guys to fix. That's not my problem. <laughs> well, global warming is a global problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, uh, just to put a personal angle on it, where I live, um, we've had um, uh, simply unbelievable bushfires in 2019. Um, I I live on a farm um, up the mid-north coast. Um, We had uh, fires four kilometres to the south of us uh, and they basically ringed us. We're in a burning ring of fire, you know, the closest one was four kilometres away, which is about 20 minutes if the the wind changed, uh, literally. Um, and so, you know, um, and then it's, it's been followed up with three very big floods. I mean, where I live floods, I mean, that's normal. It's not an abnormal event, but normally you get a big flood every, you know, maybe every sort of six or seven years, you'll get a big one. Um, we've had three big floods since 2019 and the damage that that's causing is, is, is massive and, um, and it's ongoing, um. Yeah, we haven't seen the end of it. It looks like we're going to be in for some more, some more um, quite severe weather in the coming years. So, I um, yeah, look, the, the the climate change thing is particularly real where we live. In the report you wrote, you you said that the IEA, and I'm paraphrasing, basically stated for their net zero in 2050 uh, goal, there there can be no more new projects. You know, for for drilling. Uh, oil and and and, and gas, yep. but as as we see in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, there's tax credits being given for enhanced oil recovery. So that that seems to fly in the face of of the uh, International Energy Agency. Yeah, well, there's been. I mean, look look globally around the world, um, we've seen a massive expansion. Uh, that there was a report just out only a couple of days ago um, the, the, uh, from the UN. There's been a massive expansion in global fossil fuel subsidies um, at a time when we've got, you know, more climate events. And, and, and I think the general, the general thing globally is, is more people are aware of what's causing the, the, the extreme weather events we're happening. Uh, that are happening, that there is more acceptance of the science of climate change globally. Um, and I think that that um, governments' reactions to that um, haven't been there, uh, really haven't been there. You know, we are seeing massive, where I live in Australia, we're seeing massive new oil and gas projects opening up, um, really global-scale projects. They're not little ones. These are global-scale Oil and gas projects, you know, not far from where I live, we had, you know, a massive coal mine approved um, just recently, an expansion, massive expansion of a coal mine that, that, that's of a global scale. Um, and, and you know, the, the, this, these, these things are still, you know, the governments are still very much in the business as usual mode um, and, and probably more so. Probably, actually, we're seeing an acceleration of of of, um, of fossil fuel support um, with the current energy crises we're seeing globally. They're not seeing it as an opportunity to to um, to adopt uh, cheaper, um, more economic, 
and cleaner sources of energy. And I think that's the key point is, is that what we've seen is we've seen massive increases in gas, not so much in the US, right? I mean, I know you've seen a trebling in your price, but it's still reasonably priced on a global scale gas in, in the US. But elsewhere, um, gas is not an affordable fuel. And um, that, that's for much of the third world. That's for much of the first world now. Um, gas, you know, in Europe, for example, gas is, is not an affordable fuel. It, um, it, it can't compete with cheaper renewables. Um, and that's occurring globally. Really, that's occurring globally. Um, we're seeing this massive move um, in the economics um, due to the high gas prices, high oil prices, and very high coal prices. People actually, in this whole argument, people have forgotten that coal prices have gone through the roof. So, um, yeah, um, yeah, it is, it is quite an extraordinary thing that we're experiencing at the moment. Um, the, 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 the government reactions, you, you would think that they would say, all right, all those prices have gone up. It's much cheaper to do stuff with, with renewables. Let's, let's, forge it let's actually push harder on renewables now there is that move in europe um obviously for you know just to be able to produce power indigenously is um you know within their own countries is very important to them uh having been you know having gone through the experience of having their supplies cut off from russia um but 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 you know we we really um we really do need to see globally a, a move towards locally produced power uh we need to see that move. Um, economically, it makes sense now, um, and and uh, we need to see governments move on that, and not not be beholden to their traditional party donors, which is what's happening globally. It appears that the oil and gas lobby still has a lot of influence when it comes to crafting response uh, to 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 global warming. Yes. The oil and gas industry has a disproportionate a disproportionate say in 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 how we're going to go about um, decarbonising, considering that we're talking about trying to decrease the oil and gas industry's influence. Of all the projects operating now, what percentage of those projects um, are uh, for uh, enhanced oil recovery? Um, it's 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 seventy three percent for enhanced oil recovery. So the vast majority are for enhanced oil recovery. There's about twenty six percent are industrial, and then there's just a tiny percentage um, that, that 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 are for um, other direct air capture and and um, actual like producing carbon type products. The direct air yeah. capture just really is not, I didn't see much about that at all. I mean, the idea of just running some sort of facility to, to filter out carbon dioxide, I, I think it was 0.01 metric tons have been captured in history that way, which is, is nothing compared to the power sector. Could you give us some, some scope to that, some, some perspective to that? I mean, if you have direct air capture technology is 0.01 metric tons, how does that compare to, let's say, what the, what the power industry is putting up? Uh, it's about 39 million tons as a whole industry. So, like, that gives you an idea that, 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 that you know, um, direct air capture really isn't a thing. Um, you know, like it's a one, one, a couple of tiny little demonstration plants um, globally. Look, 
the whole process is very energy intensive, and I think that 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 really has to be recognised. A fundamental feature of any form of carbon capture and storage is it's energy intensive, and if we start with that that very basic fact, it gives you an idea that direct air capture probably you're better off not putting that stuff up into the air first to capture it again. Uh, if it takes so much energy, you know, like we've got to start going for lower energy alternatives. So um, maybe not producing the emissions in the first place is is kind of like a smarter way to go about things. Um, and that's really what we have to do if we're looking at, at, at the global warming problem. Is, is there a way in which you would like to uh, summarise your work? In summary, I suppose the, the work was meant to be a look at what is in existence today, how is it performing, and, and it was really a performance report on the carbon capture and storage industry. And what we found is that it's not performing, and it really is that simple. It's a, it's a non-performing industry. And um, if we just um, take that one clear thought away, um, it, it gives you an idea. Following this as 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 a method of, of of reducing emissions globally is 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 really just chasing a rabbit down a hole. It's not going to work. Well, Mr. Robertson, thank you so much for joining us at Breaking Green. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Breaking Green, a global justice ecology project podcast. To learn more about Global Justice Ecology Project, visit globaljusticeecology.org. Breaking Green is made possible by tax-deductible donations by people like you. Please help us lift up the voices of those working to protect forests, defend human rights, and expose false solutions. Simply text GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 1-716-257-4187. That's 1716-257-4187.